0: So this morning and for the next three Sundays, Advent's going to be our focus. Advent sermons these days tend to focus on topics like hope, peace, love, and joy. And we've done that here before. Uh, they're beautiful topics. Uh, even some, some even claim that those are the, what the four candles of the Advent wreath represent, hope, peace, love, and joy. But we're going to take a step back in time to a more ancient topic. And these are known as the four last things. These are the four stark realities with which every man, woman, and child must reckon. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And death is the unavoidable consequence of sin. And after death comes judgment, and judgment separates all of humanity into two flocks, to use the parable of Jesus. Sheep that will enter into the everlasting joys of heaven and goats who will enter the everlasting pains of hell. Therefore, what could possibly be more important than for you and I to ponder the four last things and to prepare for what is to come? The certainty of death, the terrors of the day of judgment, the joys of heaven, and the pains of hell. Those will be our topics for the season. This then is the first of the four last things, death. So if you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. This is the passage we just read. I chose this passage because of what Paul says about death in verse 21. And we're going to focus on four words to die is gain. But first, you need context. Paul pens this letter from prison to the church in the city of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony. The ruins of the city are in modern-day Macedonia. Paul tells this church, contrary to what you might think, that his time in prison was actually serving to advance the gospel. That was because as he was under arrest, some of the brothers were gaining more and more boldness to go out and proclaim the name of Christ. And there were others, though, who started preaching, and they had selfish ambitions. And they even preached to spite Paul. But but Paul doesn't seem too concerned about that because he had a laser-like focus on his mission. He focused on the one thing that matters most that Christ be proclaimed. And because that was happening, even though he was in prison and that the motives of some of these preachers were, was wicked, Paul rejoiced. And he uses that word repeatedly in this letter. In our text, Paul tells the Philippians that because they were praying for him and because the Spirit of Christ was sustaining him, he was confident that he would be delivered. Then in verse 20, Paul says this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, now get that, now, now, even chained to the floor of this prison, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You're getting a glimpse into the heart of this man. And Paul is doing exactly what I am commending to you this first week of Advent. He is pondering his own death. Let's watch him do that. Paul expects that Christ will be honored in his body, whether he lives or dies. And here is the basis for that hope. Verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Those last four words are the point of this sermon. For the believer, to die is gain. Paul will explain that in verse 23. But first, we have to ask this question. How is it that Christ will be honored in Paul's body if he lives? Verse 22... If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Paul's saying that if he survives, he'll continue laboring. He'll continue working for Christ. His laser-like focus is on his mission. You see, this man had a radical transformation that happened on the road to Damascus. He was struck to the ground by the blinding brilliance of the risen Christ. And that encounter set this man on fire. He is a sold-out, gospel-proclaiming, passionate follower of his Lord. And if he survives this stint in prison, he gets to keep doing exactly what he's passionate to do. He'll work. He'll proclaim the gospel. God will produce fruit from his work in Christ will thereby be honored. That's how Christ will be honored in Paul's body if he lives. But here's the dilemma. And Paul feels this to the very core of his being. We're still in verse 22. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. As Paul ponders the very real possibility of death he's caught between two conflicting desires not equal desires but two conflicting desires now in reality the decision of whether or not paul lives or dies is out of his control and he knows that ultimately that depends upon the sovereign will of his god and more immediately That decision seems to be in the hands of the Roman government. But here's what's happening in Paul's heart. Verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Why? Because that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. As Paul ponders his own mortality... That's his dilemma. To live is Christ, a fruitful life that honors Christ and benefits the Philippians. But to die, now that will be gain. We'll come back to those four words. But as we enter this Advent season, I urge you to ponder your own mortality. And as you ponder, ask yourself, what is my dilemma? What am I hard-pressed between? And an honest answer to that question may well open a window into your own heart. You see, death, brothers and sisters, is all around you. Daily, you are reminded of it. One national newspaper this week, Monday, South Africa, an elevator plummets 650 feet down an old mine shaft. 11 minors die. Tuesday, Charlie Munger, the billionaire vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, dies. Wednesday, Japan, a U.S. Air Force V-22 Osprey on a training mission with eight aboard crashes into the sea. The body of one service member is recovered. Seven are missing. Thursday, Henry Kissinger dies. Friday, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court, dies. I don't know how many people died this week in Ukraine, and the only reason the body count in Gaza is low is because of the temporary ceasefire, that it, which has now expired. So reminders of death are everywhere. Don't waste them. When they flash across your screen, ponder your own mortality and consider talking with your children about it as well. Be age appropriate, of course, but don't neglect talking with them about the reality of death. This past week, I stumbled onto a short letter that Jonathan Edwards wrote to his 10-year-old son. And it's just a wonderful example of this, though, though some of you might be horrified at what he wrote. Um, I think it's a wonderful example. Jonathan and Sarah let 10-year-old Jonathan Jr. accompany a missionary on horseback to an Indian settlement that was about 200 miles away. The Mohawk Indians there at the settlement seemed amused with the young Edwards because he actually could speak a dialect of theirs. But here's what Edwards wrote to his son. And I'm going to read almost the entire thing. This is the actual manuscript um, at least page one, I'm going to read the first part of it because I want, you to, I want you to catch the niceties of Jonathan Edwards, his heart for his son, um, before you hear his very stark warning. Dear child, though you are a great way off from us, yet you're not out of our minds. I'm full of concern for you, often think of you, and often pray for you though you're at so great a distance from us and from all your relations, yet this is a comfort to us, that the same God that is here is also there with you. And that though you're out of our sight and out of our reach, you are always in God's hands, who is infinitely gracious. And we can go to Him and commit you to His care and mercy. That's the end of all of the fluffy niceties. Now, Edwards gets down to business with his 10-year-old son. Take heed that you do not neglect him. Always set God before your eyes and live in his fear and seek him every day with all diligence. For tis he and he only can make you happy or miserable as he pleases. And your life and health and the eternal salvation of your soul and all that is in this life and that which is to come depends upon his will and pleasure. The week before last on Thursday, David died. Now, David was a Mohawk boy who was a friend of Jonathan Jr. David died, whom you knew and used to play with and who used to live at our house. His soul is gone into the eternal world. Whether he was prepared for death, we don't know. This is a loud call of God for you to prepare for death. You see that they that are young die as well as those that are old. David was not much older than you. Remember what Christ said, that you must be born again or you never can see the kingdom of God. Never give yourself any rest unless you have good evidence that you're converted and are a new creature. We hope that God will preserve your life and health and return you home again in safety, safety. But always remember that life is uncertain. You know not how soon you must die and therefore had need to be always ready. I am your tender and affectionate father, Jonathan Edwards. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to the same. Let the daily reminders of death be as Edward says, a loud call of God for you to prepare for death. Life is certainly uncertain. Now, what is this thing we call death? What is this thing that's so newsworthy and so frightening? Well, if you crack open a dictionary, you'll almost always see a definition that includes these ideas, the end of life or the departure from life. I'll tell you, that is just suppressing the reality. The Christian knows better than that. Physical death is merely the temporary separation of the soul from the body. It is not the end of life. It is not departing from life. It is the destruction of the physical body as we know it. It is leaving this world and immediately entering into the next. So from the view of the Christian, death is not the end. R.C. Sproul says, When we close our eyes in death, we do not cease to be alive. Rather, we experience a continuation of personal consciousness. No person is more conscious, more aware, and more alert than when he passes through the veil from this world into the next. That's death. It's not annihilation It is, as J.I. Packer put it, a departure into another mode of being. It's when the souls of the righteous are made perfect, though their bodies have not yet been resurrected. As you enter the season of Advent, ponder the fact that it is appointed by God for you to die once. And after that comes judgment. But why? Why does this horrible reality of death even exist? The answer goes back as far as Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, but Paul packs the answer into a single verse in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What happened in the garden was not isolated to one man and one woman eating forbidden fruit. Adam was the head. He was the representative of the entire human race. And his rebellious act against his creator is what unleashed death, both physical and spiritual, upon the entire world. Death is the inevitable result of sin. And so death spread to all men. And the devastation was vast. Every human since Adam has been born in sin. Therefore, all are sinners. Sinners by birth and sinners by choice. And so it is that mankind to this very day, apart from the mercy of God, exists in a state of lifelong enslavement to the fear of death and under the rule of the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. Ponder this reality. You were born on death row. Now, if you went to church in Puritan, New England, to get to your meeting house, you'd pass through the churchyard, which would be littered with gravestones. And on some of those gravestones would be engraved in Latin two words, memento mori, remember You must die. And that's what I'm urging you to do this year for the first week of Advent. Memento Mori. It is wisdom, said an old wise Puritan, to remember your errand. That is, remember why you are here and why you are still alive. It will be but a sad deathbed for a man to think he was busying himself only about trifles, playing with a feather, and neglecting the main thing he came into the world about. Well, if you find gravestones and letters by the likes of Jonathan Edwards too morbid for you, then I would urge you to ponder the words of King David in Psalm 39. O oh Lord, Make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth, and he does not know who will gather. Memento mori. Remember, you must die. Ponder death, what it is, why it is, and how unavoidable it is. And after you do that, then your soul will be ready for some good news. Not from simply pondering death, but by pondering death as gain. As Paul sat in his cell in chains... Why was he torn between a desire to live and a desire to die? That that dilemma doesn't even make sense to many of us today. And the reason for that, I think, is that we cling to our earthly life. We cling to our earthly things as if that's all that exists. We go to extremes nowadays just to extend our life a few more years What a tragedy that Christians who claim to be the heirs of the riches of heaven and who claim that Christ is their supreme delight would do anything to stay here just a little longer to play with their trinkets and their toys. They're just feathers, brothers and sisters. They're just feathers. Your view of death is indeed a window into your heart. It says something about what you truly desire and what you truly believe. For Paul, these desires presented a dilemma. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like we said earlier, Paul desired to live so that he could honor Christ in his work. That's why he says to the elders in Ephesus, I do not count my life of any, of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is life for Paul. So I ask you, of what does your life consist? Achievements? Reputation, stock market, retirement, a muscle car or a motorcycle, your family, Paul's life was to finish his course, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Well, that makes sense of his desire to live, but why is death so appealing? Take a look at the second half of verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Be clear. To depart is to die. I want to be crystal clear about that. That's the language we used earlier when we defined death. Death is the temporary separation of your soul from your body. It is the destruction of your physical being. It's departing from this world and stepping immediately into the next that's the departing that Paul's talking about. And for Paul, stepping into the next meant that he would finally be with Christ. And that happens in an instant. No purgatory, no intermediate state. You will go from writhing in pain upon your deathbed, clinging to your hope in Christ, and in the blink of an eye, you will be in the presence of your Lord. Yes, we are of good courage, wrote Paul to the Corinthians, and we would rather, there's Paul giving you another look into his heart, we would rather, this is what he desires above all, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, if Christ would be honored in Paul's body in life, as we saw, then how would Christ be honored in Paul's body in death. That's his argument, right? He says in verse 20, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So how will Christ be honored in Paul's body in death? The answer is that Paul considers death, that is, departing from this world and entering the presence of Christ to be of greater worth than life itself. He esteems the presence of his Lord as more valuable, more desirable, far better than anything else. Anything he leaves behind. For Paul, to die is to gain everything because he gets Christ. And that's far better. By valuing Christ more than life itself, he honors Christ in his body in death, Christ magnified. When you desire, Christ is magnified. When you desire Him above life itself. As I was studying this, I read this commentary that just stunned me. This uh, this person wrote, um, despite Paul's conviction that he will remain alive for the benefit of the Philippians, I, I'm reading it that way just to poke fun. Um, Despite his conviction that he'll remain alive for the benefit of the Philippians, he would be equally happy if he were to be taken home to be with the Lord. No. Not equally happy. It's not what Paul says. He says to depart and be with his Lord is far better. There's no comparison in Paul's mind. He wants Christ far more because Christ is far better. And that desire honors Christ. It makes much of him when you find him more desirable than anything here below. And don't make a mistake about what I'm saying. Paul knows that death is an evil. He knows that it's the dark consequence of sin. He calls death the last enemy to be destroyed. But he also knows that death for the believer brings him immediately into the presence of his Lord. He knows what an old Puritan once said, that death shall carry thee to thy Redeemer. Fear not dying, since you cannot be perfectly happy but by dying. All his earthly labors, all his pain, all his suffering will cease. He will finally be delivered from his body of death. But far more importantly... He'll have the prize for which he fought. He will have Christ. To die is gain. So I'm urging you to ponder death as the ultimate gain. I'm not making light of death itself. Death is ugly. The process of dying is not something to look forward to. And some of you even now are are watching friends or loved ones pass through it. It's gut-wrenching. Let those experiences preach to you like gravestones in the church courtyard. The reason death for the believer is gained, the reason that it's far better than life is because the believer will be immediately in the presence of Christ with whom is life, immortality, unshakable peace, everlasting happiness, and perfect rest. That's why it's far better to depart and be with Christ. That's even the logic of the martyrs who conquered the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony because they loved not their lives even unto death. To die is gain. The early church apologist Justin Martyr said, it was this divine presence, that is, knowing that they would immediately be in the presence of Christ that made the primitive Christians to rejoice. They rejoiced more when they were condemned than when they were absolved, and to kiss the stake, and to thank the executioner, and to sing to the flames, and to desire to be with Christ. Oh, if you truly had but a taste of the glory of the one in whose presence you'll be. Once you pass through the veil of this world and into the next, you would desire death like a bride does her wedding day. So, brothers and sisters, skip the eggnog this week and do something far, far better. Ponder death. Then ponder death as the ultimate gain. Then thirdly, ponder how it was that death For the believer became gain. How did that happen? Enter the first advent. An angel announced the arrival of Jesus with these stunning words. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why did Christ come? He came to save. Unto you is born a Savior. In light of your sin, in light of death, the inevitable consequence of your sin, it is gloriously good news for you to hear those words, fear not. The saying is trustworthy, wrote Paul, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That was the mission His Father gave Him. The Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And what moved the Father to do so was love. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. That's the big word that means that He is the wrath-quenching sacrifice for our sins. And all of this is good news of great joy. Now, it is Advent season, so we need to ask this question. Why did the Son of God need to become flesh and actually dwell among us? Was there no other way? Take a look at Hebrews chapter 2. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's the story of the first advent. The son of God taking on human flesh and blood. It's why he is called Emmanuel, God with us, wrapped in human flesh. The picture here in Hebrews is that of a high priest who can enter the presence of God, intercede on behalf of his people and offer sacrifices of atonement for their sins. But that's just the picture As you know, the picture is a shadow. Jesus is the substance. Why did he become flesh and blood? Verse 14, so that through death, that is through his death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. You see the good news? That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death have been subject to lifelong slavery. He came as Savior, which is what the name Jesus means, the Lord of salvation. He came to deliver and he came to destroy. He came to destroy the devil and to deliver those who were enslaved to the fear of death. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Clearly, he did not enter humanity to save spirit beings like angels. He came to save his elect, flesh and blood sinners like you and me. Verse 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and to make propitiation. There's that big word again, to be the wrath quenching sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. To be a savior, it was necessary for him to be truly divine and truly human. He must be Emmanuel, God with us. If not, you remain in your sin. Death has the last laugh And you are without God and without hope in this world. But the grace of God has appeared. And in a mind-bending act of love, the first advent, God sent His Son to take on human flesh, to live the perfect life that you could not live, and to suffer and die a humiliating, bloody death on a Roman cross to save His people. On that cross, he atoned for their sins. His death secured their gain. But the good news doesn't end there. On the third day, he rose bodily from the grave. And now this King Jesus sits at the right hand of God in heaven. And he offers forgiveness of sin and life everlasting to all who repent and put their trust in him alone to save them. That's good news. And that's the good news of the first Advent, and it is good news for all who believe. If you have not done that, do not delay. You don't know when death will strike. As an old Puritan once said, it is but a few days till thy friends shall lay thee in the grave and others do the like for them. If you verily believe that you would die tomorrow... Oh, how seriously would you think of heaven tonight? So what is the connection then between death? It's the first advent. So what's the connection then between death and the return of Christ, the second advent? Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll look at just a couple of verses here, 22 through 26. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. There's a lot in there. If you remember from our study in Colossians, you'll you'll remember that that at the cross, God, through Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. At the second advent, we see their final destruction. What began at the first advent will be commenced at the second. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's part of what we're looking forward to in the second advent it is the death of death itself and then that my friends is tidings of comfort and joy because the destruction of death will ensure that the resurrection of the dead will last forever your soul will be reunited with your glorified body and you will live in the presence of your lord forever ponder death Ponder death as ultimate gain and then ponder how death became gain and glory in the love of God for sinners on display in the first advent and look forward with eager anticipation to the second advent for the return of your Lord, the resurrection of your body and to life everlasting and the death of death itself. Let that be the ground, the foundation of your tidings of comfort and joy this season. Brothers and sisters, those truths are in fact your only comfort in this life and in death. Let me close by reminding you of the first two questions of the Heidelberg Catechism. The answers to these questions are a beautiful summary of the tidings of comfort and joy that you have because of the first and second advent of King Jesus, Question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I with body and soul in both life and death am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil. And it goes on. Question two, how many things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort you may live and die happily? Answer three things. First, the greatness of my sin and misery. Let's ponder death. Ponder why death is. Second, how I am redeemed from all my sin and misery ponder how death became gain, and third, how I am to be thankful to God for such a redemption. So all I can say is praise the Lord for the advent of King Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is a heavy subject, but Father, we want to enter into this season of joy on a firm foundation. Father, we want to, we want to recognize our, our frailty. We want to ponder carefully the fact that we must die and after that comes the judgment. Father, we want to ponder carefully how it was that death became gain for the believer. And Father, I pray that if there's any, anyone here today who has not embraced you in faith for the saving of their souls, Father, I pray that they would not waste any time but in their pondering of death would recognize the great gain that comes from believing. I pray that you would reveal that to them, convict their heart, and Father, rescue their souls. Father, I ask that you would do this miracle in their heart, and I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.